Alright, so here we are, episode 10, High Tide in the Dream Time. And I'm calling this one Iowa Scam. And it's gonna be wide-ranging, but it's been in the uh, it's been in the pipeline for a while. I've been thinking about it. And so what I wanna what I wanna start with is last yesterday I was on YouTube. And I was seeing these, this video, I don't know why it came out up on my thing, on my feed, but it was about Prozac. And it was about how when Prozac came out, I think in 1988, everyone was talking about it. They just kept referring to it as the medicine. The medicine. The medicine does this. The medicine does that. They didn't call it Prozac, um, which they revealed in the video was, it was called Prozac because pro made it seem like it was for professionals and Zach made it seem active. That was the name of it. I don't remember what its actual, uh, what its actual chemical name is, but that's why they called it Prozac because they want professional people to feel like it would make them active. Anyway, one of the things I notice, you know, working with psychedelics and is that people are very involved with ayahuasca and they also refer to it as the medicine. So I've been thinking about doing this for a while and I'm going to do it today and I hope it entertains you and informs you and uh, that you get something from it that you find useful. So this all begins with me, for me in 1988, because in 1988 I was at Syracuse University and I was in this class with this guy named Agahananda Bharati, who he was a fascinating character. He'd been born Leopold Fischer in Austria, I think in the 1920s, it must have been. Um, and he was born to an aristocratic family. And during World War II, he got drafted into Hitler's army and he got sent to India. And when he was in India, he went AWOL. He abandoned the army. He'd totally been fascinated with India since he was a little child. And he was became a mendicant monk, a sannyasin monk for 17 years in India after he went AWOL. And he walked barefoot across India, I think two or three times. And then he came back to the United States and, or he didn't come back to the United States. He came to the United States and studied and he became an anthropologist whose expertise was in South Asia. He spoke 17 uh, languages from the Indian continent. And he was teaching it. He was the head of the Eastern Studies Department at the University of Washington until they asked him to leave in the late 60s because he was giving undergraduates, he was giving undergraduates LSD and teaching them tantric sex. So he then went to Syracuse where, which, where he worked the rest of his life and I encountered him and he was quite a character. He's head of the American Anthropological Association for a while. He wrote a bunch of books on mysticism. Uh, he was brilliant. He was funny. Uh, the Dalai Lama, when he came to Syracuse, asked to have him at his table. And when he sat down with the Dalai Lama and they were introduced, he said to the Dalai Lama, you don't really believe you're the incarnation of the Buddha, do you? And he said the Dalai Lama looked at him and shrugged and said, who else? So he, had, he, had, he also had this amazing sense of humor. And, I, and so I, I love taking his classes. I took every class with him I could take. 
And one day he was talking about peyote use among Native Americans in northern Mexico. And I raised my hand and because I'd read a few Castaneda books. I asked him about the Yaqui. And when I, who are the tribe that Don Juan from those Castaneda books apparently was supposedly was from. And when I said it, this rage went across his face. Like I've rarely seen in my life. And he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said, you read that liar Castaneda, don't you? And I said, uh, meekly, I said, uh, yeah. And he said, oh, he's so furious. He had written a book called Tracking Castaneda which was about the fallacy of Carlos Castaneda's work, that in fact it was fiction and it had no foundation in anthropology or the practices of the people that he talked about. And one of the things he spoke about was that the Yaqui, which Don Juan uh, was a member of the tribe, they didn't even use peyote, which is a lot of what the stories of Journey to Ixlan and a Yaqui way of knowledge were about, these these castaneda novels in the 70s and the people who used uh who used peyote in the area were the huichol not the yaki so you know he basically i read his book and he basically revealed that uh castaneda's books were all fiction and they were a combination of like gurjeev's thinking and tibetan buddhism and psychedelic experience and you know a mish and some zen and some you know, lucid dreaming. And while they were very clever, they were absolute fiction. Um, and I know, a friend, you know, and Castaneda, after he made all this money from, from, from those books, he basically had a coven in Los Angeles where he kept several girlfriends. He charged people extraordinary amounts of money uh, to train them in ways of seeing and basically create a cult around himself. And in fact, I have a friend who has a relative who was taken for millions by him. Okay, so it's part of what happened though after this was people kept going down to Mexico to where the Yaqui were travelers, intrepid 70s hippies looking for Don Juan in, in the areas of Mexico where the Yaqui inhabit, you know, as a as a sort of hodge and nobody ever found him because he existed in Carlos Castaneda's imagination. But what this experience with Bharati, Aghananda Bharati did for me, besides humiliating me, um, was really make me look at religious developments in our culture critically. And so I'm flash forward uh, flash forward, you know, a few years and I'm living in San Francisco. I'm going to graduate school at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And my new roommate is a, she's a professor at the San Francisco Art Institute. And she also was in charge of the floats at the Grateful Dead shows that were at the Oakland Coliseum, which were kind of like their home shows. Like they'd make these floats for uh, Chinese New Year or Mardi Gras or New Year's Eve. And she was sort of a supervisor on it. And she said to me, she said to me, Robert, you have to come. I said, I I have to come. Why? And she said, because you're a deadhead and you just don't know it. And I was like, nah, I don't think I am. 
but I'll come because you seem very fervently uh, passionate about me coming and I'll come. It sounds like fun. And I, I'd actually seen The Grateful Dead, I guess also in, 19, in about 1986 in, at, in Irvine at a show. And I kept just thinking like, where's the part happen where you want to follow these guys everywhere? Because I sort of wasn't getting it. But anyway, so I go with her and she had this like group of friends who were like artists and techies and they were super deep into the Grateful Dead world and they, they were involved with the organization and they always had great seats at the Oakland Coliseum. They were always in like the fifth or sixth row and one of the guys who was in the group was a guy named Howard Rheingold who was who's a professor at Stanford now and at the time was sort of the world's expert on virtual reality. This would have been like 1992. And he would travel to Detroit for the weekend and make a quarter million dollars talking to the big automakers about what virtual reality was going to do for them in the future. (laughs) He was living in Marin. He was a really bright guy, really eccentric. Um, And uh, there were a lot of fun. The shows were a lot of fun. But I still never considered myself a deadhead. But once, another friend invited me to one of those shows. And she wasn't in the organization. And she had kind of crappy seats. And the crappy seats were kind of like in loge. Like way back in the Coliseum. And, you know, I I couldn't really see anything. But she had a bag of mushrooms. And I ate a bunch of mushrooms. This is going to tie into today's thing. And because the seats were so bad, basically I laid back in my seat and closed my eyes and listened to the dead play, which was sort of fun. And I had this semi, I would say it was a semi-mystical experience where my eyes were closed and there was a depth and I could see Indra's net, experience it and experience the kind of web of existence that preceded this life, followed this life and was interwoven in this very life, which I thought was very profound, even though it was at a Grateful Dead show. Um, it did happen. And I also remember the, the what woke me out of that reverie was riding the BART back to San Francisco. And when I got off the BART to get on the San Francisco railway system, there were a couple homeless people having sex <laughs> in the hallway. And it was sort of like the depths of hell. Um, <laughs> It really sobered me right up. But anyway, so flash forward to, I don't know how many years later, 10, 12, 15 years later, and ayahuasca is happening. And, you know, I hear about it and I read about it and I read about this. Uh, I read about this in the in a Huffington Post. Somebody wrote about the ayahuasca experience and I got in touch with them because I was interested and I. I demonstrated my psychedelic credibility with who, I, who I'd been educated by and all that sort of stuff. And they put me in touch with this group in Santa Barbara. And the group, you know, they were fairly loose about admitting people. I knew somebody who'd been there who could sort of vouched for me. And I was curious. And um, I drove up to Santa Barbara to this rundown kind of like hippie enclave And there were a bunch of cars in the driveway and it instantly kind of had this like burning man feel to me. It wasn't, it was sort of surprising to me. Um, And I felt a little nervous when I got there. And 
there's a guy standing out front smoking a cigarette. And I, and I went and I made small talk with him and I said, hey, how many of these you been to? He looks at me and goes, oh, well over a hundred. And I thought to myself, wow, and you're still smoking cigarettes. Hmm. So I started to get more and more kind of uncomfortable and hesitant about this situation. And, um, you know, I talked to the people who are running it. One guy was in sweats who was running it. And when he got up, I could see the, the, the crack of his ass every time he got up, which made me feel really uncomfortable. And he just told me basically a lot of people were afraid before their first encounter with ma- mama, he said. I think he said mama. And, you know, it's normal to be afraid. And I just kind of thought like, oh, whatever. I've come up here. I'll do it. That was kind of how I did it. Like, I was just like, I drove up here. I paid for it. I'll do it. Even though I have weird vibes and this place isn't that clean. And there seems to be a lot of people in this room. I'll do it. So I did it. You know, I went through the ceremony. The guy sang. Uh, and he was with his wife. And they're, they're big people. They, like, travel the world doing ayahuasca ceremonies in Ibiza and Europe and Oregon and all that sort of stuff. And I drank the ayahuasca. And, and at a certain point, I was in the exact same realm that I was in at the Grateful Dead show with bad seats. Indra's net. Same exact realm. I'm like, oh my God, this is just like psilocybin. Still profound. Um, still, uh, you know, a realm that was interesting and informative, but it was the exact same realm as that I'd had in bad seats on psilocybin at the Grateful Dead show. So I was pretty excited about it because I felt like, you know, I'd gotten over my apprehension. I'd had this very profound state and I was kind of coming down and I went outside and I either, I was either meditating on the back deck or I was, um, doing yoga or something. I don't know. I don't want to be in the room anymore because it was making me feel claustrophobic because people were really suffering in that room and I wasn't suffering. I just sort of had that bad Grateful Dead Seats experience. And the woman who was running the, uh, ceremony, she comes outside and she's, comes and she stands next to me and she says, Robert, you have to come back inside and you have to do more medicine. And I looked at her and I said, oh, no, 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 I'm good. You know, I had the experience I wanted. I felt like it was like Apollo 13. I felt like I went way out there, Andrew's net. I didn't tell her that, but I was back and, you know, my curiosity was satisfied. And I said, so no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to stay out here. And she looked at me and she stared at me. She got really close to me and she looked me in the eyes and she said, Robert, you have to do more medicine. And I looked at her and I said, oh, yeah. No, no, no. You're not in charge of that. I'm in charge of that. Um, But if you need me to come back inside, I'll come back inside. And, you know, if it's upsetting to the group that I'm out here, I'll come back inside and join the group. But I'm done. I'm not doing any more medicine like she called it, like they called Prozac in 1988. Um, And I went back inside because I didn't want to be disruptive. I wanted to be a a, a good participant. And I went back inside and people were drinking more. And at a certain point, this guy started screaming at the top of his lungs. Fuck this shit. Fuck this. It's all fucking nothing. You know, really screaming at the top of his lungs. And uh, he got up and he ran out of the room. And as he was running out of the room, he caught his feet in mine. 
and he kicked me <laughs> like I was the borderline to freedom. Like, like I was his chains and if he broke free from me, he'd be free forever. And he went into the next room and he just started screaming at the top of his lungs for about three hours. And after about 20 minutes of it, like I'd had enough and I went and knocked on the door and both people were inside with him. No one was out in the circle anymore, even though people were continuing to have experiences and they sort of opened the door a little bit and they peeped it open. And, uh, I said, are you going to get him to stop screaming? Cause somebody in this neighborhood's going to call the cops, <laughs> which is really what I thought. And they go, whoa, we're handling it. And I was like, and I said, do you want me to get him to shut up? Because this is like, if you can imagine somebody screaming as loud as you've heard anybody scream. And they said, no, 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 we'll handle it. So I got up in the morning and, you know, the guy did scream for hours and I got up, I was supposed to stay an extra day and I left because I was like, I'm done with these people. It was pretty amateurish. Um, and they kept calling me um, to come back like for days and weeks because I don't know, I don't know, is there, I thought maybe there was like a Yelp uh, review of ayahuasca ceremonies and they were afraid I was going to rag on them. Um, but, you know, I, I, I thought it was, somewhat ridiculous and, you know, like kind of unimpressive. And I it went, wow, that's just like psilocybin. You know, that was, that experience was just like psilocybin, except for the, they kept blowing uh, smoke at me and singing and to singing to me in Spanish. Anyway, so I know what people are thinking. People who really like ayahuasca, they're like, oh, you've never been to a real ayahuasca ceremony. And in fact, I had. Because afterwards, I told people about this and like, oh, you got to do this thing in Topanga Canyons. Real dude. He's Shipibo. He comes from generations of Shipibo shamans who do this. And I did it. And it was great. The guy was great. He played 10 or 12 musical instruments. He had a couple guys who translated as Spanish. And it was really like the difference between seeing, you know, like a Grateful Dead cover band and seeing the Grateful Dead. It was warm. It was insightful. It was kind of luscious. And I had a great time. And then and I did it a couple times with him. And, you know, I got a bit from it. And then a couple years later, a friend of mine, a really dear friend of mine, asked me if I could take him to an ayahuasca ceremony because he thought, like, I'd know about those kind of things. And so I did. I took him to that ayahuasca ceremony. And it had completely degraded. Like gone were the articulate Spanish translators. They'd been replaced by actors, out of work actors. And people were going crazy in the ceremony and the guy just kept singing louder. And the out of work actors were getting sick from the ayahuasca and they were taking care of each other. And I ended up taking care of my friend the whole time. And he had a fairly profound experience, but it was not because of, of how things had been set up. And it had turned out that the... Shipibo shaman from generations of shamans had been touching women at these ceremonies. So people that had been working with him just had kept peeling off until he had these two out-of-work actors and it had become ridiculous. Um, and so what I, what I really want to say is that these ceremonies, people traveling to the Amazon, it is the notion of the noble savage that there is some wisdom that these unsophisticated, unmodern people have in their forest, in their Amazon forest, that's going to teach us and fix the ills of modern life. It is just like Carlos Castaneda. 
Um, and primarily the way I want people to understand this when I talk about it is DMT, which is in ayahuasca, which is what makes people have psychedelic experiences in ayahuasca and psilocin, which is the, what psilocybin gets broken down to in your gut before it passes to the blood brain barrier are identical molecules. They are identical molecules. Like I'm going to say it once, identical molecules, except for the fact that psilocin has an extra hydroxine leg on the, on the structure of the molecule that keeps it from being digested in your gut. So what that means is that if you take psilocin, if you take something with psilocybin in it, the psilocin will go through your blood-brain barrier just from eating the thing with psilocybin in it. Now, ayahuasca, which has DMT in it, now there are a lot of vegetables and fruits that have DMT in them. Okay, so oranges have DMT in them. Lemons have DMT in them. A lot of leafy vegetables have DMT in them. Peppers have DMT in them. But because of how your uh, digestive system works, it breaks down DMT. DMT isn't protected against your digestive process. It oxidizes and becomes nothing. So you could, you, could, you, could, you could eat plants that have DMT in them and nothing happens in your brain because it gets broken down in your gut. So ayahuasca, the brew, la medicina, that they call it, is this combination of plants that have DMT in them and the ayahuasca vine, the vine of souls that everybody's so excited about, that has what's called an MAOI inhibitor in it. The vine is not psychedelic in any way. What it does is it, it sort of greases the skids in your belly so that the DMT doesn't get broken down before it goes through your blood-brain barrier. So what you're getting is you're getting these plants the plants that have dmt in them look like these kind of flowers they're they look like house plants really they're not very exciting and <laughs> like no one would fly to the amazon or or open their house for these plants cuz they're not really that exciting but the vine which everybody is very excited about has these maoi inhibitors that allow the plants to not be metabolized, that allow the DMT to go into your brain. But what I really want to emphasize is that besides the fact, the fact that DMT and psilocin are identical molecules, except for this one leg on psilocin molecules, and Dennis McKenna, you can listen to him talk about it on a Joe Rogan podcast, basically says that psilocin is orally active DMT. Like there's no difference in the two things. And then you have things in the culture that then get taken up and become part of the ceremony, like La Perga, you know, people vomiting at ayahuasca ceremonies. Now, I did ayahuasca five or six times, and I never vomited. I never thought I was going to vomit. And that's probably just because I have a bit of an alkaline system or I, my stomach tolerates acidity. The acid levels in the brew cause people to vomit. Some people vomit, they can't tolerate it, and some people don't. But in the mythology of ayahuasca, they call it La Perga. And like, unless you've had La Perga, you know, you haven't really cleansed. 
But really why people are throwing up is because of the high acid content. You know, but they've, they've incorporated the reaction of the high acid content into the mythology. And so what, what, what I thought was worth saying is that this whole culture has sprung up around ayahuasca. The shamans, the international travel to the Amazon, the economy in this culture where we have 20 people in a room and two or three people helping them. And it's based on the same fantasy as Carlos Castaneda's books were, which is that there's something foreign and simple and there's folk medicine that's going to break us out of our conditioned state uh, into something more eternal, something more profound. And we already have that in this culture and it's called psychedelics. In the 1950s and 60s, people were working with LSD before it was illegal with eye shades and earphones and curing people of anxiety, curing people of depression, curing people of alcoholism, curing people of drug addiction with the models that work in Western culture. And the models that work in Western culture are empathy. That's what all therapy is based on in Western culture is one person listening to another person and communicating to them that they hear them and that they empathize with the experience they have. You know, I went to graduate school uh, and I thought I was going to be like the most far out, clever, young and when I say young, I mean youthful, Jungian analyst of all time. I was 23. I graduated from, I got a religious studies degree. I graduated with honors. I thought I'm going to be the smartest person ever done that did this. And the first day of graduate school, basically, I learned that if you listen to somebody, you're, it's healing to them. And so when I went to these ayahuasca ceremonies and I saw 20 people in a room, 25 people in a room and two or three people helping them and always the people who were suffering the most were the people who were helped the most. And, you know, I had stuff go on at them and I remember sometimes a shaman would come over to me and he'd blow smoke in my face and sing songs. And I remember him saying to me once, he goes, you okay? And I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah, you're always okay. And then he moved on to someone else. And... I feel responsible for letting people know that it's a culture. You're going to hear mama. You're going to hear la medicina. You're going to be asked to wear white. You're going to hear acaros in Spanish, which if you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to know what they're talking about. You're going to have tobacco smoke blown at you, which I'm, I don't believe ever he'll, uh, mapacho is what it's called. You're going to have, you're going you're gonna to have all that stuff go on and you're going to be left on your own lot. It's an economic model. I work with people. When I've worked with people, I've worked with people one-on-one -on -one, and people have asked me to do groups. They want to do their friends. They want to do their relatives. They want to do their friends and their relatives. And I know I can't help more than one person at once. That my attention can't be spread that thin to actually be helpful to people. The ayahuasca ceremonies, it's an economic model which is designed to bring in as, much as many people as you can at once. 
That's what it's designed for. It's designed to raise income of the person putting on the ceremony. Um, because if you really know what helps people, what helps people is a one, is one-on-one contact. And I don't fault people for doing this because I think that people, there's a lot worse ways to make money. But I also see the, the thirst in the culture and the thirst in the culture is for something profound and something eternal and something that exists outside of time and space, which is really just something that exists in the human mind. And there's a part of the ayahuasca culture that's exploitative and cult-like. And everything that's available in an ayahuasca ceremony is available in the psychedelic experience. It's not new. It's sort of like everything, you know, that was in the Don Juan novels and the Yaki Way of Knowledge novels. It was in Zen Buddhism. It was in Mahayana Buddhism. It was in people's psychedelic experience. It was in Gurdjieff's writings, which weren't really that profound. But my impetus in saying this is that people don't need to travel to the Amazon to have this experience. They don't have... The, the, the most profound experiences aren't had in a group of strangers. They're not had in an experience where you have to be self-conscious about your expression or your suffering because you don't know the people around you or the people around you are people that you have a relationship with who view you a certain way. You know, it sort of reminds me, I saw recently in this goop uh, series, these people went, I guess, to Jamaica and they did psilocybin ceremonies. And it was a group of people who worked at goop. You know, people were sitting with their bosses and with people that worked for them. And, you know, you don't want to be in, a group with hierarchical relationships with people that you care what they think about you or they, or you care about what they know about you or they care about how you suffer or they care about what's embarrassing uh, to you. You know, you gotta, you gotta do it in a way that you aren't feeling self-conscious at all and you trust the person that you're working with. And so I just feel that it's super important that people get some objectivity on this experience because I see so many, I guess I, I don't want to call them ayahuasca heads, but okay, I'll call them ayahuasca heads. And they have, um, it's a culture. And the culture will not heal you. Calling things plant medicines will not heal you. Sitting in large groups with strangers will not heal you. What heals is the direct encounter with your own experience. And you don't need all the bells and whistles. Nobody does. There are so many bells and whistles in your own consciousness. There's so many bells and whistles that if you contact them and allow them to move through you are going to be healing that you don't need to add anything to it. Human consciousness is profound, mystical, uh, holistic, and whole. And nobody has to do anything for you to have that experience. They don't, nobody has to sing any songs. Nobody has to uh, play any instruments. Nobody has to uh, 
hold something that's foreign over you to keep you from having that experience. And, you know, I know this probably isn't going to be one of my more popular podcasts and that's okay, but I really wanted to talk about it because it's something I see a lot. And I really work with a lot of people who've had uh, traumatizing experiences in ayahuasca ceremonies because they just don't contain people's suffering in the in a way that has already been determined in our culture to work. And people are so quick to run to the other cultures. They're so quick to use the technologies of other cultures because of how they've suffered in their own, thinking that they're gonna find something somewhere else that isn't in them. So I hope this has been helpful and entertaining and kind of fun, but I also hope that it's been informative and educational and if there are people who've listened to this and they've had bad experiences in ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, there's a reason that that's happened. And there is, if this keeps anybody else from having experiences like that, I also know that people have had great experiences in ayahuasca ceremonies um, and been helped by them. And another thing that I'm going to sign off before I sign off, I'm going to talk about is the frequency of it. You know, I hear about people who do ayahuasca ceremonies every weekend usually in Ojai um, and, or every other weekend or a couple times a month, which is, and my experience with working with psychedelics is that you have to integrate the experience you have with psychedelics before you have more psychedelic experiences. Like a psychedelic experience is like a dream. And if you don't get everything out of that experience that's intended, if you don't break down the experience into something that you can use in your everyday life, and you just then have another psychedelic experience, you're gonna, whether it's ayahuasca or, or psilocybin or LSD or 5-MeO-DMT, you're just gonna have the same experience over and over again. You know, you're just gonna be like, you're gonna get there and be like, oh, it's this again. And it's gonna be like, hey, didn't I already tell you this? Why haven't you done anything about it? Because I had this great uh, Zen teacher named John Dyson Buxbazen. And I sat with him for about 10 years and all American Buddhist teachers started with psychedelics. And I remember when I first went to this ayahuasca ceremony, he was interested in me talking to him about it. And I talked to him about it. And he said, the thing about psychedelics, whether, no matter what they are, is that they can be a doorway but they can also be a revolving door. And if you don't integrate your psychedelic experiences, if you don't get great meaning from them, if you don't figure out what they were about and then utilize that in your life and you do psychedelics again, you're gonna get a rerun. You're gonna get the same information because the, the intelligence that is you is gonna be like, hey, didn't we already talk about this? But you're still doing it or you haven't really delved into this, so I'll show it to you again. And one of the things I see in psychedelic, in uh, ayahuasca ceremonies is people doing it continuously, 50, 60, 70, 40, 30 times. And if you're doing anything that much, it's becoming regular, you're not getting what's unique and profound about it. Because a psychedelic experience can be mined for a year. You can do a year of work on a psychedelic experience 
in your normal state and still get information from it. Six months. Nobody needs to be doing it that often. And if they are, what they're actually getting addicted to is a disassociation. And what people love is a disassociation, the disassociation of being a Westerner in America, in the United States, and becoming an Amazonian primitive, you know, an Amazonian uh, native, or a Mexican native, or a, whatever it is. You know, if it's, if it's going to India, it's becoming a native Indian, you know. And it's our normative state that we have to tend to. We have to tend to the state that, that we're always in, and we want to incorporate these things into them but we can't escape our normative state. We can just widen it using these tools. And the, the ayahuasca culture has put the cart a little bit in front of the horse. And so I'd wanted to make this for a while and really emphasize that there is no difference between psilocybin and DMT and that a culture has sprung up around getting people to metabolize DMT. And you should know that. If you're in that culture, you should know that if you're considering sitting in a ceremony. And you should really be able to look at yourself and ask why you're doing that. And why the need for difference is so important to you in your development. All right? So I hope that I hope that this has been an entertaining, entertaining story and uh, has 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 inspired some thought and will be enjoyed. Um, and if you know anybody who, who, who is involved in this world and you want them to have this perspective, feel free to pass it on. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.